Today's scripture is 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1 to 11. Stewards of God's grace. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. First Peter chapter 4, verse 1 to 11. God's word with us. Hey, thank you, Rob. Well, good morning, Bergen Park Church. Hey, it is good to see you guys here. I got to share something I'm excited about. Good Friday, as you know, is the Friday before Easter, the day in which Jesus was crucified and died. And historically, Christians have gathered on Good Friday in preparation for Easter Sunday. One of the things I want to challenge you with, if you've never fasted, and you don't have to start with food, you can turn off that television, uh, you can turn off whatever you go to, maybe not go to the internet, no Facebook, I know it's hard. Just kind of turn that stuff off, and from Friday night until first sunrise Sunday morning, just allow God to speak to you and prepare your heart for Easter morning. We're going to have a potluck that good Friday night, so we're going to get nice and full. So if you're going to fast, you know, you'll have a, I, I guess you'll probably be more hungry since you ate a lot, but... Um, we're going to gather that Good Friday, and we're going to do a Seder, uh, a Seder meal. A Seder meal is a meal that celebrates um, the Passover. Then the story of the Bible, there is the Exodus story where God comes in and rescues the nation of Israel out of slavery. And if you realize this, but the whole New Testament uses the story of the Exodus to explain what Jesus did for us. Matthew, Mark especially, they go to the Exodus story, and so like John the Baptist will say, hey, look, it's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Well, that's the Exodus. That's the Passover. And in the Seder meal, what we're doing is we're looking at the story of the Exodus and seeing how that applies to Jesus, how the Old Testament points forward to the coming of Jesus, and then prepares us for Easter morning. So we would love for you to jump in on that with us. Uh, but we didn't know you're coming. If you want to, to do that, uh, one thing you could do even right now is just take a little piece of paper, write your name on it, how many people are coming. You can drop it in the offering box, which is in the back as you head out. You can go to Connect Center or even go on, on um, Church Community Builder, CCB, right? Builder, yeah. 
which is connected to our website. We would love for you guys to gather with us as we prepare for Easter morning. So it's good to have you guys here. Hey, we're going to jump in today, 1 Peter, as we read, chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. I'll tell you, this is a little challenging. Uh, it's a challenging passage. But what he's doing, and if you go back to chapter 3, he says that we're supposed to live in a way that points people to our hope. As Christians, we're to live in a way that doesn't just answer every single question. You know, sometimes we'll argue as Christians about every little detail. When somebody argues with us, you know, we'll kind of feel like it's our job to defend God. God doesn't need your defense. What He needs and what it says is we're supposed to, first of all, not just defend God with our words, but with the way we live our life. And our life should reflect our hope. And when people see how we deal with suffering and hardship in life, when they see how we do family, even when it's broken, and instead of just going to arguments, we go to humility and we turn to grace. When they see how we deal with money and life, when they see how we deal with politics, they should see that we have a hope that is different than the world. And we should give an answer to the hope that we have. That was chapter 5, verses 14, uh, 3. Chapter 3, I'm testing you. You knew it. Chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. You're supposed to live in a way that points to our hope. But here's the challenge. Here's the challenge. Uh, Peter's going to say in chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, that we've spent enough time in sin. Now, I don't know if you have that testimony. We've spent enough time living as the world does. And he says it's time to walk away from the things of the world, meaning just kind of following the desires and the passions of the flesh. And he lists a whole bunch of sins there. And you know, you kind of listen to that, you're like, wow, right? Orgies, drunken parties, times really haven't changed. I must be honest. Times haven't changed. It's not like the human being somehow has gotten better with time. I mean, this is 2,000 years ago, and he's saying 2,000 years ago, basically, you were living for the desires of your flesh, and you saw an opportunity to satisfy some comforts, and you satisfied some comforts. And you kind of picked up your feet with the desires of the world and just went where the winds took you. And he said, you've spent enough time living that life. But what happens when you've kind of lived that life, and you've got buddies, you've got friends, girlfriends, that have lived that life with you, you've done the partying scene, you've gone to clubs, you've kind of spent the money the way you wanted to do it, you've lived it up. What happens when you decide to put your hope in Christ? What happens with, in the midst of that culture and all the friendships and your family that knows you really well, and now you're trying to live for Christ and they're kind of saying, you know, you're nuts? What is this new thing? Don't try to convince me that you love God now. I know who you are. And your life starts to follow a different direction. What he's going to say is that they may malign you. That they may look at the life that you're living and they're going to slander you. They're going to say, this is ridiculous. How do we live in a world, on the one hand, that may reject what we believe, and even we may have neighbors or friends or family members that may malign the hope that we have in Christ? How do you, how do you fight the temptations of the desires of the world that you've already kind of dived into a little bit. I know all of us have had a little testimony, right? A little bit of that. We've kind of dived into that pool a few times. And so those temptations haven't gone away in our culture. I mean, turn on television, they're constantly there. It's saying, hey, this is joy. This is joy. Have as much as you can eat. Enjoy it all. 
Allow people to see what you have and be impressed with who you are. That's where life is found. And then that's constantly going on, but yet now you're trying to follow Jesus. So you're trying to pick up your cross daily and follow Him, and people are looking at you saying, this is stupid. This is dumb. Why are you giving money? You work hard. You work hard for it. Why would you give that to a church? Churches are broken. They're corrupt. Why would you give to the kingdom of God? Why would you give to some guy who's got a PhD, could be doing amazing things, but instead he's in India telling people about Jesus? What a wasted life. How do we live in a culture and follow Jesus? And yet, many people will say what we believe is foolish and how we're living is worthless. How do do you kind of live in those tensions? Well, that's what verses 1 through 11 are about. How do you follow Jesus and yet try to deal with some of the temptations in life? How do you shut down those desires? Because I know we have them. I mean, I know that we struggle with those desires. The desires that people struggled with 2,000 years ago are still the desires that we struggle with today. So when we jump into this text, what he's going to say is two things. Essentially, he's going to say the way we overcome the temptations of life is, first of all, you've got to look back. And by looking back, meaning we've got to have a cross-centered life. We've got to keep the cross before us. We've got to look back to what Christ has done for us. But then beyond that, the next step is you've got to look forward, meaning to Christ's return and to the judgment that life isn't just about today. But rather, God is the creator, and there is an eternity that he has placed within us. There's this desire within us to live beyond this earthly life. And so when death comes, it feels like something's wrong. And so what he's going to say is we need to, on the one hand, look back to the cross, but two, we need to look forward to what God will do in eternity. So let's jump into this passage and then look at verse 1. Watch this. How do we overcome those temptations? Notice what he says. He says, okay, since Christ suffered, so we know that Christ suffered on the cross. Since Christ suffered in the flesh, in His body, He says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh, notice, has ceased from sin. So He's saying, as Christ suffered in the body, arm yourselves with the same thinking that Jesus had because He who has suffered in the body is done with sin. Here's the result, so that to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the passions of the flesh, but rather for the will of God. See, what is the secret to combating the temptations of life and dealing with the slander and the maybe agitation of our culture? What he says is it's not a new behavior. What I love about this is he's not saying try harder. You know, get up earlier. Do more, fight more, resist more. Rather, what he says is it all begins with a new way of thinking. Do you notice that? I'll tell you, that's freedom for me. Because for a long time, and I still have this in me, I kind of lived as a, a perfectionist in a lot of ways. A perfectionist in what I do, and I wanted people to be impressed with with my Christianity, right? With my scripture knowledge, with how well I knew the Bible. And that was kind of my way of saying, hey, I'm okay, world. I'm okay. I, I've memorized this. I know this. I can explain this. That's, that's what makes me know that I'm okay. Well, realize there's always someone that knows more. There's always somebody more dynamic. 
There's somebody more gifted, more talented. If you're trying to lead out in life with your own efforts, he's saying you're going to be worn out. And Christianity isn't about just doing. It begins with being. I mean, do you realize that? The Christian life is not a life of following God's commandments. It's a life realizing God is in me. God has come in me. He's awakened my heart to the truth of who He is. I've received the gospel through grace and faith. And now Christ dwells in me and He's given me a new life. And so Christianity begins with God taking up residence in your heart through His love and grace and saying, there's a better way of life. And that better way of life is when your eyes are set on me. Now, what he says there is, is instead of just going to effort, what we've got to go to is a new way of thinking. Specifically, he tells us we are to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. Now, what does that mean? Well, this is the challenge because it's, it's a little confusing exactly what it means, but it can mean a couple of things. On the one hand, when you think of the cross and think of the disciples, we're about to get into Easter, right? So we're going to talk about this Easter morning. Realize none of the disciples were at the tomb counting down. You know that? It's not like, hey, he's going to rise again. You know, he's going to die on Friday. We get it, Jesus. You've told us this. But you're coming back three days. Sunday morning, he's going to rise. None of the disciples were there. You know why? Because they thought Jesus' life was a disaster. Now, they loved Jesus, they respected Jesus, but they thought, okay, it ends. It's over. He talked about hope, but we don't see hope in a cross. Crosses are not hope-filled. You with me? Crosses mean you lose. You're dead. You suffered. And he didn't just suffer just, just, just on the cross. Rather, he was flogged, he was beaten, he was mocked. I mean, everyone abandoned him, his closest friends, those that he walked with and invested into, everyone he lost in every single way, physically, relationally, financially, all of it. Jesus loses, and yet he was obedient to the Father. And so looking at that, you're like, what's the point of obedience? If I'm going to be obedient to God and my life is going to end in a cross, how is that? Obedience doesn't make any sense. But the reality is, God vindicated Jesus through the resurrection. The greatest defeat in human history became the greatest victory, that Christ rose from the grave, meaning that as all this was going on, you know Jesus also struggled because in the garden He said, Father, not my will, I want to get out of this, but your will. Meaning in some ways He's saying, hey, this path doesn't make sense. I don't want to go this path. I don't want to die. I don't want to suffer, but I'm going to trust you when everything else says I should run. That's what the garden's about. You know why it's dark? You know why he's alone? What's the temptation? Because there are others that have suffered worse physically than Jesus did. It's not just about that. It's escaping the wrath of God for sin. That what happened on the cross, we're going to look at this, is hell, our hell, fell on Jesus and he was separated from the Father. And he had every opportunity to flee. But realize, that's also our story. Because in coming and following Jesus, what he says is take up your cross. What a great advertisement, right? Come to the church and take up your cross. What does it mean? It simply means die to self. 
that instead of following my own wisdom, God, I'm going to trust you. And, and when it doesn't make sense, I'm going to trust you. That's what Jesus had to do. He had to trust the Father when everything in him said, hey, it's time to run. And here's why. Because just as Jesus armed himself with this way of thinking, God is going to vindicate me in the end. I don't need to vindicate myself. I can trust him. And we can trust him because we see his goodness in Jesus that God is worthy of being trusted. Because even in Jesus, as harsh as it got, we see the good that God brought out of that suffering. And so likewise, in our obedience, when we feel like, hey, listen, I'd rather give in to temptation. I'd rather get angry. He's saying, it's worth it. It's worth it to trust God. God will vindicate you. We have to arm ourselves with that way of thinking. Otherwise, you're lost to the world. The world, is its messages are so much more powerful. They're better speakers than I am. You know, they got better multimedia. They got radio, television. We got 30 minutes on a Sunday morning to get into God's Word. I can't compete with that. But see, the Holy Spirit set on Jesus is powerful enough. Because when you see that, you'll say no to sin. That's what he's saying. Look at that in verse 2. He says, so that so that we wouldn't live the rest of the time in the flesh. When we arm ourselves with what Christ endured, no longer do we live for the flesh, but rather we live for the will of God. We live for freedom. That's what the will of God is. The will of God means to live according to your design. Just as a car is designed to run on gas and not water, you put water in a tank, it's, you know, it's going to happen. Likewise, we are designed in a certain way. And we are designed to glorify God. And so in our obedience, he's saying, arm yourself with the reality that Jesus was faithful when it did not make sense. And he was faithful for you. But beyond that, notice he says in, in verse 1, and this is important when you're reading Scripture, is it gives you these little reminders. And so he says, so since therefore, meaning go back to the preceding context. When it says therefore, you ask, what is it therefore? And it's saying, hey, because of what I just said, this is true. And so what did he just say? Well, if you go back to verse 18 of chapter 3, he shows us why did Christ suffer. Well, notice, notice the way he describes this in, in chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered. Well, why? Once for sin. Now, I don't know if you know this, but Christ was sinless. So what he's saying there is he also suffered once for you. He suffered for my brokenness. He suffered because of my rebellion. And not just my rebellion before I came to Christ. I'll tell you, there's been a lot of rebellion since I've come to know Christ. He died for my past, my present, and my future sins. He suffered for, what's it saying? Is He suffered for me. And he describes, who is Jesus? He's the righteous who am I? I'm the unrighteous. What was the point of his suffering? Notice it says to bring you to God. The reason he suffered was to bring you to your creator. To bring you to the love of God. To bring you to the one that knows you completely and loves you totally. I mean, that's amazing, right? He knows us. Better, you know, than our spouse knows us, right? I mean, our spouse knows us pretty well. I mean, they start figuring us out, right? Am I the only one that, okay. She's figured me out because she can see past. You know, the first couple of years, you kind of try to, yeah, you, you try to convince them and then they start to really get to know you. And the cool thing in marriage is, is you get to this point where you know each other. 
You know, they walk in and you're like, oh, I know what's going on. And they love you. But see, even my wife doesn't even know me to that extent. God knows me completely. He knows my fears. He knows my the worst possible thoughts. You know, right now, if like my worst three thoughts went up there, none of you would be here. But I can guarantee, I can guarantee you if your worst thoughts went up there, I wouldn't be here either. Because that's just a broken, isn't that our heart? I mean, we got this junk, I mean, just, can I say it? Crap in us. Is that okay in church? It's what, it's what it, it's in us. It's this just brokenness. And yet, he's saying, I, I suffered so that I might draw you who is unclean and unrighteous to the one that matters and created you so that he could pour his life into you. That's amazing. I mean, it's amazing for someone to pour their life into you as a gift on itself, right? Just in life. Imagine somebody that you admire that starts pouring their life into you. That's cool. I mean, whether it's in, in a job or in relationships, but this isn't just any person. This is the God of the universe, the creator, the holy one. You think of the universe, the stars, how vast creation is. This is the creator that wants to pour his life and his love into you. Christ suffered to bring you to him. And he's saying, when you arm yourself with that reality, it kills the desire for sin. Because listen, why would we chase after that that once separated us from the Creator? Why would we chase after the very thing that Jesus suffered to bring us to the Father? It doesn't make sense. What kills sin is not more effort. It's worship. It's more worship. It's our hearts captivated by what Christ has done. But then if you turn the page and go to chapter 2, he says, Christ didn't only suffer to bring you to God. He says in chapter 2, Christ also suffered so that you might be done with sin. So he says in chapter 2, verse 21, watch this, for to this you've been called because Christ also suffered again for who? For, For me. The suffering of Jesus was for me. It was to keep me from the brokenness of sin and bring me to the Father. He suffered for you, leaving you an example so you might follow in His steps. Here's what He did. He committed no sin, neither deceit was in His mouth. He lived a beautiful life. When He was reviled, He didn't revile and return. He didn't return evil for evil, He's saying. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but He continued. This is how He endured it. He continued entrusting Himself to the one who judges justly. That's God. Everything went wrong. God, I'm going to trust you. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? Church, why? Look, why? So we might die to sin. Why did Christ suffer? To bring you to God. Why did Christ suffer? So that you might die to sin and come alive to righteousness. Come alive to the reality that living for God is a much more joyful life. Now, what convinced us of that? What convinced us that living for God is a better life? What convinced us of that was grace. That Christ took on Himself what I deserved so that I could receive what Christ deserved. That we might be done to sin. Peter said, we read it, right? You read it. You're with me. Verse 3. We've spent enough time. You've had enough time living for the passions of the flesh. we got a lot of testimony in here to that. You know, every one of, I imagine we take all the desires of the flesh. We probably got them in here. We probably got at least one person that's gone there. It's okay. 
We got tested, we got pasts. Every saint has a past, but he's also got a future. Every one of us has those desires and temptations. He says we're done with it. Why are we done with it? What causes us to be done with sin? You've got to look to the cross. If you're not broken by the death of Jesus, you're not going to overcome the power of sin. Willpower is not enough. Because you know what willpower will turn you into? Turn you into a jerk. Just to be kind. Willpower, I'll tell you, why, why will willpower turn you into a jerk? I'll tell you, because you'll look at everyone else and say, what's wrong with you? What in the world is wrong with you? I did it. Because willpower, what's it doing? Hey, I said no, you should say no. Well, the reality is their life isn't your life. Their past isn't your past. You don't know what they've experienced. You don't know their parents. You don't know their temptations. You don't know the DNA that God has placed in them that has designed them in a certain way to think certain ways and react. You don't know. What is it that enables us to say no to sin? It's setting our heart on the brokenness that Christ suffered for me because the reality is, here's the, here's the big picture. No matter how much I say that we're sinful, you, you never discover your sin by someone telling you. You always discover your sin by experiencing it. Now, some of you know exactly what I mean because you have messed up. I know I have. I know the depths of my brokenness because I know how wretched I've been. I know how angry. I know the kind of cursing that's come out of my mouth. I know the way I've treated people who have sacrificed and loved. I know that. And when you see that ugliness, because right now you guys are all pretty and we're good. Maybe we're good today, right? So this doesn't really hit us. You look at the suffering Jesus, you're like, well, sure, look at me. I'm pretty good. He should die for me. But what does that look like when the creator of the universe and your ugliness in that moment where all the junk's coming out and, and, and we kind of see it and, and that ungrateful attitude and, and we look at the cross, why would you love me like that? That's what breaks the heart to say, I'm done with sin. I've spent enough time. Now, how do we apply that? I want to help us wrestle with this because this is incredibly important. And the New Testament is based on this whole idea that the way you grow is not by trying harder. I want you to know that. This is what sets Christianity apart. Every other religion says try harder. Five pillars, three times a day. It's kind of like your vitamins, right? you got to take them. Every religion says follow the rules, follow the rules. Christianity says follow Jesus. Because you can't do it. You need a Savior. And so what is he saying? The way we grow is from faith to faith. You thought you knew the cross, look at it again. You thought you understood grace, experience it again. You thought you knew the love of God, what does Paul say? I want you to know how deep and wide and long and high is the love of Christ. You haven't started experiencing God's love. How do you overcome sin? You've got to look to the cross. Well, what does that look like? Well, last week in chapter 3, Peter recognized the fear that people were experiencing. He knew the torment that they were suffering and what they were going through because the early church that he's speaking to was going through tremendous hardship. And in chapter 3, verse 14, in chapter 3, verse 14, he says this to this church that's suffering and going through hardships. He says, but even, even if you should suffer for righteousness, so if you do the right thing and you should suffer, you're blessed. And then he says, have no fear of them and do not be troubled. Now, why should they be afraid? Well, they should be very afraid 
because the church had no power and they were marginalized. If you have no power and you're on the margins of society, you have no value. And there's a lot of people that understand what that means. When you're on the margins of a society, you do not have power and people do not value you, you can be wiped away really easily. And we've seen that in human history. Tons of people being wiped away because they had no value. That's where they are. They should be afraid physically. But notice, what's the solution to fear? The solution is, he says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy. Now, it didn't kind of hit you right away, does it? It's like, really? Okay, that's all you got? Don't be afraid of them. Instead, what's he saying? In your heart. So not this is not intellect. We're not talking. And that's what arm yourself is not intellect. I want you to understand that. When you come to faith in Christ, there's a lot of facts you get. The goal in, of growing in Christ is getting the facts into the heart so that it affects your behavior. And to arm yourself is not just to believe it, it's to carry it with you into life. When an army goes out to arm themselves, they go out ready to engage. They don't leave the weapons behind. Instead, they gear up. They look at the battle plan. They go out ready to engage. What he's saying as Christians, you've got to carry that mentality because you live in a world that's pushing against Christ. They don't value it. And if we're going to draw people to Jesus, and I want you to understand, 1% of the people in Clear Creek County bow their knee to Jesus Christ. 1%. Who's going to be accountable for that? We who confess the name of Jesus Christ. Clear Creek County is in the top 10 unreached counties in the entire United States. We live in a mission field. One of the reasons I felt called to come here was because this is a mission field. I lived in Arlington, Texas. 60% of people in Arlington, Texas went to church at least four times a year. 60%, meaning there's still a lot of people that didn't know Christ, but there were tons of great churches. God has called us for this time and this place to reach this community. That is why we exist. That's why we're here. But how do we overcome in this life the fear? He says you've got to set apart Jesus is Lord. Now, when you're afraid, why are you afraid? A lot of reasons, but on the big picture, psychologists will tell you it's because there's something you value that you're afraid to lose. And they've been telling us this for a long time. Psychologists have said, if you want to discover what you value the most, well, look at your greatest fears. Whatever you fear the most will show you what you value the most. And what he's saying is the way to overcome fear is to value Jesus. That's simply what set apart, honor Christ as holy. You've got to to set him apart as your treasure. Well, how are you going to do that? You can't just kind of do that, right? You can't just kind of get the willpower. I'm going to set apart Jesus. No, you've got to see what he's done for you. To the degree you see what Jesus has done for you to sacrifice his life for you, to give you the life that you have, that's what's going to cause Jesus to be valuable in your heart. Now, I love how... How Jesus said this to the disciples, kind of shocking. You know, it's like, really? That's your comfort? In Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, so the disciples, and no, the disciples didn't have their best life now. I know that book's popular, but it's not good. The disciples died and were martyred. They didn't have a great life, but they had joy. That's what made it amazing, is they suffered with hope. But he says to them, knowing that they're going to all suffer horrible deaths, this is how Jesus, this is what he said to them. 
Matthew 10, verse 28, and do not fear those that kill the body, because you will be killed. But notice, but cannot kill the soul. It's okay. Bless you. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, what's he saying? That doesn't seem comforting. Don't fear the ones that can kill you physically. Fear the one that can, dis- that can destroy the soul. Well, what is he pointing to? Well, realize, re- realize when he's talking about hell, and on the one hand, you know, our culture wants us to get rid of that. Um, here, here's the danger when you get rid of hell. You get rid of love. I can't get into why that's true, but it is. You get rid of hell, the concept doctrine of hell, you get rid of the depth of love and sacrifice. Because otherwise, Jesus' death was stupid. Now, let's be honest. If somebody get, puts himself in front of a bus to save me, but I'm not in front of the bus, that's dumb. Why would Jesus die if there wasn't a danger? It shows us the depths of love. But what, what, what is he saying? He's saying, don't fear. What did Jesus on the cross, what happened? Let's get back to that. When he suffered for us, what happened was our hells, our collective hells fell on him. Because our rebellion, ignoring God, he's created us in his image. Around us is constantly, the psalmist says, screaming. Creation screams out the glory of God. But you know what? We shut it down for television. We shut out God's presence and His voice in our life with desires and passions to the point that all that starts to shut down and we just kind of live this earthly life knowing I'm dissatisfied, I'm dissatisfied, but you're created for something more. And on the cross, Jesus received that brokenness in Himself. Why? So that we would value Him above all else. To realize He was willing to do that to demonstrate while I was a sinner, Christ died for me so that I'd know the love of God. And the purpose of the gospel is that we would be washed in the love and the acceptance of our Father, not because we've gotten it right, but because we're now adopted as children of God. When you start to value what Jesus did for you on the cross, you'll start to value Jesus, and you'll know the persecution of others, they cannot touch that. The world cannot touch that. And in fact, what Scripture says is when you suffer, Jesus becomes more real. How did the disciples endure? Martyrdom, suffering, burned, upside down, crucified. How did they endure? How did they endure? They knew that by suffering in the way they did, they were displaying to others their hope. And they were displaying to the world the value of Jesus. It wasn't because they wanted to, but rather they lived in a way that demonstrated the power of trusting in Christ, and they loved Him because of what He had done for them. Church, how do we resist temptation? You've got to keep your eyes back. We've got to pick up our cross daily and follow Him. You've got to be broken, and, and it's only something the Spirit of God can do. You've got to be broken by your own sin, and then instead of running to despair, You run to the love of God. What is the gospel? You're so sinful, Jesus had to die for you. But listen, we're so loved, he wanted to die for us. What does that lead to? Humility and courage. Humility, I know I'm broken and I need a savior. Courage, look at what he was willing to do for me. We got to look back, but second and quickly, we got to look forward. 
Because he says, though they malign you, see that in verses 5 and 6, we can't get in too much, but he says, they're going to give account. So, so here's what happens. When somebody slanders you, I don't know about you, but I kind of focus on that person <laughs> a lot. When I lie down at night, think of all the wonderful things I'd like to say to them. Because that's in me, people. I'm a pastor and I know that. That's in me. I got that junk in me. But what's he saying? They're going to have to give an account. Church, you've got to let that stuff go. You've got, you got to let it go. It's not your place. You're not the judge. Regardless of what somebody's done to you, you don't know what they deserve. Stop it. You don't know what they deserve. There is only one lawgiver and judge, and it's not you. And thank God. We would be horrible judges. I mean, wouldn't, right? Are you the only one? I'm, I don't know, but I don't live up to my own standards, let alone God's standards. And so when I judge someone with my own standards, I don't even live up to my standards. Let's be honest. We're so kind of double-minded. We're holding up people, judging people, but we don't even keep those commandments. God's the only lawgiver and judge. And so what he's going to say is the end. Look at verse 7. The end of all things is near, meaning we are in a strategic moment in time. Life is not this temporal clay that we live on. But rather, as we trust in the gospel, what he's saying is we've got to live out the gospel. What does it mean to live out the gospel? It means to take the cross and the resurrection into the center of your life and then live on the basis of that. Which means, how can I love people well and glorify God at the same time? That's the answer to the Christian life. That's what he's describing here. Be sober-minded and pray. Why? It's the end. You know, at the end of the game, what do they do? Hey, let's get serious now. I mean, if we weren't serious before, we got two-minute drill. Let's get to it. And so they've been practicing. Well, we're in the last, we're in the two-minute drill. This is the last moments of the game. And he's saying, you've got to be sober-minded so that you might what? Pray. Why don't we pray? Because we don't know the time. We don't know the clock is ticking. We don't know how valuable it is. We don't realize that for our kids to come to know Christ, you got to pray. That's a work of God. No matter how great a Christian you are, it's the Spirit of God that brings a child to life in Christ. We've got to pray. And we've got to be realized, Bergen Park, we're the only ones that are going to pray for Clear Creek County and Evergreen. That's nobody else's responsibility. That is our responsibility that we would pray that God would give us boldness to speak Christ to our neighbors and the people around us. That's us. That's our calling, to glorify God, not to have our best life, but to point people to the one who will give them that best life. We're to be clear-minded and sober, knowing the time in which we live. But notice what he goes on and says, And above all, Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers over a multitude of sin. What he's saying, and this is so helpful, and we can apply this to marriage if you want to. Complaining doesn't change people, right? We don't give up on it, right? We still do it. What change, when he's saying cover over, it doesn't mean to hide sin. It means to take it away. God's kindness led you to repentance. What's going to lead people around you to change? If God's kindness changed you to God, then your kindness is going to change others to you. You with me on that? Why is he saying it covers over multitude? Here's the thing. When I see someone being generous, it causes me to be generous. Hey, I should do it for the love of God, but I often do it when I see it in you. When I see someone struggling to forgive and overcome, 
what's happened to them, that, that causes me to struggle to forgive. When I see somebody serving and giving and loving God and passionately worshiping on a Sunday morning and getting into the Word of God and praying over me, it causes me to want to do that for others. What overcomes sin? Not your laws, but rather the love of God. It's the love of God that covers over a multitude of sins. So what do we need to do, church? Notice what he says we need to do. Because he says God has given us something. Because of the suffering of Jesus, you have a grace. Do you notice that? Watch this, verse 10. He says, you have been given a grace. Each has received a gift to use it to serve one another. You mean it's not for me? It's a gift, right? What gift would someone give you that's not for you? He's saying God has given you this gift, but notice what he calls it. And I love this picture. Each has received a gift not for his himself, but as a good steward of God's varied grace. You know, when we wonder, why won't the church do this? Have you heard you said that? You know, what's wrong with the church? Well, when you say that, first of all, say, hey, what's wrong with us? Come on, let's get honest. That's what Scripture says. We are the church. If you want to complain about the church, don't complain about me. Complain about us. Then let's address it together. But he's saying God's given you a grace, and when that grace isn't expressed, guess what? The people in here who are hurting don't get to experience that love. And so they're going to go off and follow the desires of the flesh. Why not? Hey, at least I'm getting comfort there. I'm not getting in the church. We got to wake up. This is the last time. This is the last moment. This is it. When we use that gift of grace, what happens is life happens. Church is no longer boring. It's exciting because people are being healed and transformed through the grace and the love of God. He's given us a gift, but notice you've got to use that gift in God's strength. You've got to use that gift, the gift He's given you in His strength, meaning in dependence upon Him. See, I want to kind of close with this. My testimony after coming to Christ is living in my own strength. I can't tell you how many times I wanted to quit this. I can't, so many Mondays, my wife will tell you, and the reason, the reason was, not because God wasn't sufficient, but I kept looking to myself to be enough. And, and I kept wondering, you know, a visitor would come, like, why didn't they come back? Guess you weren't good enough. Come on, you're there. Client didn't come back. Maybe it's a little different, but the guy didn't like you. The girl didn't marry you. I guess you're not good enough. What is that? That's a lie of the enemy to enslave me to a law that I got to be good enough. And I lived that for years and years as a pastor coming up front. And God was still using me, but I was in, sin, I was in brokenness. But you know what God had to do in my strength is He had to bring me low. Everyone, I, I've been to a lot of seminary classes, been around great pastors, but no one could tell me my sin. I had to, I had to see it. I had to say, wow, as a pastor, I'm using, I'm using my gifts to make a name for myself. I'm using gifts that God's given me that He died to impart to me so that I could impress people. And when I started to see the sickness of my own heart, even in my goodness, I was doing good things at that time, but my motivation was me. And that's why I was tired. Church, we're tired because we're not doing it with Him before us, with the cross before us, saying, wow, look at our Savior. Instead, we're looking at the passions of the world and saying, wow, look at that. <laughs> that looks good. 
Watch that television show. I mean, hey, look at The Bachelor. That's, that's a life. 25 gorgeous women around me. They all want, I mean, how, how stupid, first of all, but, right? I mean, just like, really, girls? Come on, you're better than that. You're so much better than that. That's, but we look at them and say, that's it, that's it. But when you look to the cross, you see what the Savior has poured out for you. You're like, wow, God, look at that. And every day we get to wake up and surrender. As we said, prayed earlier, and worship team, when you guys come up to pray, I surrender my life to you, Lord. And I don't know what it is for you today that, that's just too big in your heart that, that you can't surrender. What sin and temptation, but what I want to challenge you to do today is to turn to the cross and say, Father, would you not just teach me about my brokenness, would you help me to see it in my life? Because when you start to see how your brokenness starts to break others and you run to the cross and realize that Christ was willing to take that on himself, you want to change. And you want to express to others the love and the grace he's given to you. Church, we have to be Christ-centered and gospel-centered. It's the only way we will change. And it's the only way God will reach this community. Let me pray for us. Father, we need to look back to the cross. And, and I'm, I'm so grateful that for the seasons of the church calendar as we're in this Lent, um, this idea that, Lord, we, we remove things from our lives, not because that earns us favor. It's not because you look upon us any better, but it, it reminds us that we're earthly and broken. And Lord, we see that in ourselves, the frustration we had this week, maybe arguments, uh, fears that have overwhelmed us, and not just the normal fears of life, which in some ways are, are, are normal to life, but rather the debilitating fear that causes us just to, to close ourselves off from you and others. Lord, I ask in Jesus' name, you'll show us what it means to set apart Christ as Lord. Lord, that you'll awaken us to the love you've poured out on the cross. The cross wouldn't be a historic event, but it would be a life-giving source of truth. And Father, would you, would you show us that your grace and love is free? It's, it's given to us without anything we have to do, but just poured out into our lives. And may we respond to you and say, Father, thank you for accepting us through what Christ has done. Now allow us, Lord, to allow that love you've given to us to be a grace that will flow through us. Guide us, Father, in this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we worship.